Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. Since the start of the military operation in Ukraine, we are told the West is in lockstep unity. In this case, unity means following orders without question from Washington. Well, that unity has begun to unravel. New Europe and old Europe are clearly not marching in sync. Discuss these issues and more. I'm joined by my guest, George Samueli in Budapest. He's a podcaster at The Gaggle, which can be found on YouTube and Locals. And in St. Petersburg, we cross to Alexander Etan. He is a senior lecturer at St. Petersburg's State Institute of Technology. All right, gentlemen, crosstalk rules in effect. That means you can jump anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. All right, let's go to George in Budapest first. Uh, old Europe and no, uh, uh, New Europe don't seem to be talking uh, from the same hem sheet, George. I mean, we have uh, we have Macron and his famous visit now to Beijing and his uh, his return to uh, France uh, talking about um, not questioning being a follower of America. And then Annalena Baderbach goes right after him and says, no, 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 we're, we're in lock sync with Washington here. I mean, it's kind of, it would be amusing if it wasn't so dangerous that there's so many different messages going out. And it's all through the prism, for the most part, through Ukraine and also to some degree, Taiwan. George. Yes, um, this distinction between old Europe and new Europe was drawn first by um, Donald Rumsfeld, the late Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Secretary of Defense um, under George W. Bush. And uh, he uh, saw that there was a very different approach taken towards the impending invasion of Iraq by the traditional European powers, who have always been somewhat skeptical of uh, U.S. adventures such as France, Germany, and to a certain extent Italy, and the new Europe, uh, which was Poland, the Baltics, and some of the former communist states. But now this has really now come out into the open. Um, the uh, Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki's visit to uh, Washington last week, uh, during his presser with um, uh, with the Vice President Kamala Harris, he said that old Europe has tried to make peace with Russia and old Europe has been uh, found wanting. Uh, what was needed was the new approach of the new Europe, which had experience of communism and therefore knew exactly how to deal with Russia. And so now you're suddenly seeing this, this alliance because after all, the, you know, the conductor of all of this uh, Ukraine venture has always been the United States. Um, and the United States now has its uh, allies, you know, Poland, the Baltics, uh, and again, some of the former communist states, who want this to escalate. They want a full-scale war. I mean, Morawiecki pretty much says this. You know, he sees this as a civilizational struggle against Russia. And so now you've got this bunch of people, and as, as you said, Peter, this is all very dangerous. And, you know, somebody like Macron, who still has a certain amount of common sense, and saying, well, this makes absolutely, you know, this is ludicrous what was what, going on here. This is absolutely not in our uh, interest. He talks about strategic autonomy and the Poles and the rest say, no, we well, want well, no well, strategic autonomy. We'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Okay. Alexander in St. Petersburg. It's really quite interesting is because since the end of the Cold War, 
uh, the number of NATO members has doubled. Okay, now I guess you know you, you, numerically that you'd think, well, it's stronger because it's bigger. But I would say reverse. It's actually weaker because you brought in these Eastern players that don't actually bring much to the table when it comes to security. Certainly not military. I mean, we have the Baltic republics telling Germans and Italians and everybody, you send more, send more. But you know they they don't because they don't have it here. But it, there's one party that is strengthened all through this, and it's Washington. It's the United States has to come out a much stronger power in NATO because it can divide and conquer. Alexander. Well, I think these smaller states, particularly in the former communist areas of Eastern Europe, what they think they can do is by getting into this organization, into NATO and into EU structures, they think that they'll be able to then leverage their influence and pull these organizations towards their goals, which it's it's a very it's kind of strange and particularly uh, with Poland. So Poland here wants to, you know, be confrontational with Russia, confrontational with Belarus. And they apparently have designs on rebuilding their lost empire from previous centuries. And they're very interested in whether they'll be able to regain territories, particularly Lvov now that Ukraine is embroiled in this war. And uh, they apparently are looking for ways to send peacekeepers into Eastern Ukraine, so-called peacekeepers. So uh, that would strengthen they, their they would only do that. They would only do that if they had Washington supporting them. That's what's right. key, right? Right. So they think they might be able to get Washington to agree with this if they're just going to be agreeable enough, if they just stroke the egos of the American administration enough and uh, sign off on all of their programs and their designs in Eastern Europe. So whether that's going to work, I'm not sure. It doesn't seem like a very good plan. And it also doesn't seem like a very good plan, given that Poland is attempting to maintain a very traditional uh, conservative culture, and their ruling party is also very traditional and conservative, but that doesn't go along very well with the sort of ultra-liberal ideology coming out of Washington, coming out of Brussels that they're trying to force down on these traditional societies. So how they can get the empire and military aspects out of NATO and the EU without getting the social aspects of extreme liberalism, I'm not sure what their plan is for that. Well, well George and I have mused about this quite a bit because if you look at the hierarchy of institutions, you look at the EU and you look at NATO, NATO trumps everything, okay? So at least temporary dispensation, okay? Um, because the Poles, uh, you know, the, the Poland and the Baltic Republics, because they have American backing, they can punch above their weight and they know it okay and and they're taking advantage of here and of course it puts because they can uh, punch above their weight they can kind of they can kind of shame uh, old europe which of course macron's the macron's of this world don't take lightly to that but there may not be much he can do about it either george that's exactly right. It's it's very interesting because, of course, the woke Biden administration absolutely detests the uh, the social policies of the government of uh, Poland, but is prepared to overlook it. Uh, Biden has now made two state visits to Poland. Uh, he's only been there two years. He's already made uh, two state visits, delivered two quite belligerent addresses uh, on the war in Ukraine in Poland. Um, uh, Poland, you know, he's welcomed all the time in the White House. Poland gets invited to the democracy summit. Hungary doesn't. Now, so what's the difference between the two states? Hungary is 
as conservative uh, as uh, the uh, Polish uh, government, but Hungary is not taking the same line uh, on, uh, on on Ukraine, and so therefore Hungary is completely out of uh, favor. But again, in, and again, the interesting thing with the the Baltic states that they're in good odor. Well, you know, Hungary gets constantly uh, attacked for its uh, unenlightened attitudes towards um, homosexual and transgenderism. But at least, for instance, in on the question of uh, gay marriage, I mean, Hungary recognizes. Uh, gay civil unions. The Baltic states don't. There's no even, they don't have gay civil unions there. Nonetheless, the Baltic states are always in favor with Stoltenberg, with Ursula von der Leyen, and in Washington. So NATO trumps all. Yeah, Alexander, it, you know, I, I'm glad that you brought brought up uh, Poland's historical grievances when it comes to lost territory. You know, when you look at the history, the last two centuries uh, of Eastern Europe, everybody's borders have been changed a lot. Okay, and they're not—they don't stand out there. But I mean, this 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 puts um, uh, a great say uh, uh, a tripwire for for Europe because, a, as a member of NATO in good standing, um, its machinations could prove disastrous for everyone. And it, it seems, you know, when the, when the polls are given such a welcome in Washington, it seems to be giving them an indication that they have a lot more leeway than we'd like to think. What are your thoughts on that? Because that, again, this would be all laughable if it weren't so very dangerous. I could point out to everybody, I lived in Poland for 10 years, okay? I understand the, the extremes people can go. Let's put it that way, Alexander. Well, I... I... I'm not quite convinced that Poland's going to be able to get away with maintaining its traditionalism inside of NATO. Um, I think that perhaps they're being tolerated in this, but it's temporary. In the same way that the globalists tolerated China until it became clear in the last few years to them that you know, the Chinese are not going along with the globalist plan, they're not integrating into this liberal world order. And uh, I think Poland, it's expected that they will at some point submit to this. Maybe, maybe it's you know put on the back burner at the moment because of the conflict in Ukraine. But I don't, I don't think they're going to be let off so easily. No one in the U.S. Uh, empire and this transatlantic empire has been let off in the end. So these new states, they're probably given a grace period of however many years, a decade or two. But I think the implications from Washington, the pressure and the NGOs, they're all going to come in, they're all at work. It's kind of like, you know, you have uh, Georgia where they tried to ban the NGOs from uh, functioning, or at least, you know, get them labeled as being funded by foreign actors, which means working for the US government effectively, and that wasn't tolerated. Well, if you had that kind of action going on in Poland, then there would be a stronger reaction against it from Washington, D.C. But, you know, I think they're slowly going to have to acquiesce to this. So Poland has to make a choice. Do they want their do they want to pursue their imperial ambitions or do they want to keep their traditional society? I don't think they're going to get away with both. George, your thoughts on that? Because Hungary, it doesn't have, well, it, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it has territorial ambitions, but it certainly is concerned about the uh, Hungarian minority that is badly treated in in Ukraine. But, you know, we and, and, and Poland has these long claims and all of that. So the dispensation only works so far as you further the interests of empire. After that, don't count on any kind of uh, further support. I think so. I, I, I do think that what's key here is your position on the American empire. I mean, George is an interesting case because yes, 
the Americans came down like a ton of bricks over that uh, NGO law. But what had triggered it, what had triggered it was that Georgia had refused to go along with the sanctions regime. They were expecting Georgia to uh, fully support the whole NATO. Second venture. front. Second exactly. front. Exactly, because after all, Georgia and Ukraine were offered NATO membership on the same day in 2008. And suddenly it was Georgia, which not only was not going along with sanctions, but was each even uh, suggesting that he was going to lift the, the ban on air travel with Russia. This was really, you know, an insult upon injury. So um, that's really was, was key in all of this. So I think Poland can get away with uh, its uh, socially retrograde uh, views as long as it's sufficiently anti-Russian. And I don't see that changing. I mean, it, this is something in, in Poland's DNA. Well, no, but George, well, you know what's going to happen is that, you know, when everything is said and done, they're still going to be anti-Russian and the EU is still not going to accept the, uh, their political order. So I, they're on a losing end, no matter how you look at it. It's lose-lose. There's no win-win here when you take this position here, though you can get in the headlines and like, and again, you know, they want to be at the adult table. They want to be one of the power break, uh, brokers. They only are a power broker if the U.S. allows them. And that's where we stand right now. Gentlemen, I'm going to jump in here. We're going to go to a short break. And after that short break, we'll continue our discussion on some real news. Stay with RT. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. This is the Home Edition. To remind you, we're discussing some real news. Okay, let's go back to Alexander in St. Petersburg. Uh, strategic uh, autonomy uh, was already brought up in this program here, and it's something that Macron not only talked about uh, you know, last week, but he's actually made reference to it uh, in this, using the same words or the same concept uh, over the last few years. It's not relatively new, um, though the neocons in Washington and London and Brussels, they take umbrage to this. And I think from a lot of common sense people, certainly realist uh, thinkers, saying that is not really a big deal. It's not an epiphany. The problem is, is that why is he saying it now? Because isn't he a day late and a buck short? I mean, hasn't France, Germany, 
uh, Italy, uh, the other great powers uh, in Europe, um, they've just really uh, had to make their peace with the U.S. Being dependent on uh, American energy, um, uh, their trade, the trade um, relationships that they have. I mean, uh, countries like France have very limited options right now, and it's actually humiliating to talk about autonomy when you've already given it up. Alexander. I would suggest that actually Macron isn't late, he is early, because I think he's seeing what's happening in China with them uh, rising to being an important world player in a way that we haven't seen before in political situations like making peace between Saudi Arabia and mm -hmm. Iran. So I think he's starting to read the tea leaves and he sees that the influence of Washington is declining, the influence of Beijing is increasing. So the rhetoric in itself, it's just rhetoric. Like you said, there's not a whole lot that they can do. France is too deeply embedded in this NATO EU system, which the strings are being pulled from Washington DC, and there's not much he can do about that. However, the rhetoric, I think, does indicate that he sees the way that the future could uh, could change. So he's at least trying in a rhetorical way to get France onto the uh, right footing for that kind of a thing. He's trying to not alienate China because he sees that they're going to be very important over the next several decades. So near term, it doesn't really mean anything. Well, I mean, it, what's interesting here, George, is that um, I, I, what Alexander had to say is, is very, very, uh, um, very interesting. But the the more that China becomes an independent actor on the world stage, the more the U.S. Um, crowds and swarms its so-called allies. I mean, it's it's interesting is that the the, the when China is going around the world, the around Saudi Arabia, um, um, the events in Syria going on, you know, the, the U.S. squeezes its allies even more to stay in line. Is this is if it's creating this new Cold War and, and a new Iron Curtain? And it's you know, it's liberal democracies that are shutting everybody else and trying to, and the U.S. is trying to concentrate its control over its allies. Nord Stream too. Go ahead. No, that, that's exactly right, because um, it's very striking that uh, Morawiecki and Annalena Baerbock, both within days of uh, hours of uh, Macron's interview, uh, declared that no, Taiwan is of absolutely fundamental, vital, existential interest to us Europeans. In other words, we're clearly saying, no, this is for us, you know, absolutely. You know, there, there's no daylight at all between our position and that of the United States. And what Macron was suggesting is that we are going to get dragged into this war with Taiwan because, you know, the, the arc of this, uh, of this conflict with China is exactly the same as the arc of the conflict uh, with Russia. And we kind of got dragged along with this. We have this alliance. We can't get ourselves out of it. We're so entangled in this alliance that once America gets into this uh, conflict uh, in the Taiwan Straits, we will inevitably be a part of it. And, you know, he, he suggests that it may be, you know, it's going to be very difficult for us to get out of it, and it and it is obviously very difficult, precisely because uh, Poland and, and and the rest of them, including that Germany with Annalena Baerbock, they want to be in this uh, conflict, and it is getting worse. I mean, the, this this conflict in the Taiwan Straits has got worse, not because of anything China has done, but it's all been done by the United States. It's a deliberate pro policy of provocation, and and Macron does see it. We're getting dragged into this. Well, what's what's really interesting here is that. I, I you know, 
I surmise, Alexander, that Macron has been reflecting upon the fact, how did France get itself into this mess with Ukraine of no strategic uh, interest whatsoever to the to NATO, uh, to, uh, to the EU, certainly not to France, okay? And he sees that, you know, what the, the quagmire that um, uh, NATO has created for Ukra uh, Ukraine, they're going to do the same thing with Taiwan. So he's kind of saying, you know, we, we see where this can go. But what's interesting to me, is that, you know, what are the strategic interests of France, the strategic interests of the, uh, of, the, of the EU? It's not really about that. It's about elite capture. It's about Annalena Baerbach, okay? It's about the Polish prime minister. It's their interests and in, 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 in their, in their pecking order in the empire. That's what it's all about here. I mean, when you, it's really quite um, bewildering. You have the, the German foreign minister basically um, a spitting in the face of the French president. Why? Because her el elite interests are at stake, not necessarily ideological. Alexander. Well, we do know that all of these people, they socialize with each other at these conferences. They fly around on each other's jets. They're all great friends. They do unethical things during their elections in order to be able to continue attending these clubs. If they're so unfortunate as to actually lose an election, then they just get hired by various agencies or get appointed to some office so they can continue hanging out with their friends. So I think your point is right spot on. They're trying to keep up appearances among all of their buddies in this system. And it's kind of, it's just like any large organization that has an overbearing culture that it forces down on people. People are going to go along with this culture, no matter what they may have thought about it before. Money might influence their thinking on the matter. So yeah, I think that they're trying to keep that going. I don't think that uh, France is really going to be able to do much though, regardless of what they start to notice. Macron might be kind of unnerved by uh, the really sort of crazy things that the Americans are starting to say. Um, part of it may be that parts of these elites, particularly from Washington, D.C., they're just coming off as not being competent at all. So you have these mumblers like Lloyd Austin, who somehow didn't know about these uh, leaks of their secret plans for weeks. You have Antony Blinken, whose every second word he says is um, and you have a vice president who's never put two sensical words together, and you have a president who is suffering from dementia. So these, these folks are not, they're not sending their best. And uh, I think that some people, just on a basic human level in Europe, are starting to lose patience with these guys. Yeah, well, it's, it, you know, it goes back to the kind of the Vinman, you know, saying, you know, the interagency consensus, George, because that's really what it's about. And that's what's really scary about all of this is that we can have all these, you know, we can have, Sar you know, Sergeant Schultz and Annalena Baerbach and Liz Truss, you know, they're, they're all entertaining because they're so incompetent, okay, but the interagency consensus moves on. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it's uh, we can easily get distracted by the, all of the weaknesses and uh, foibles of leaders, but the, underneath it, there is, you know, for want of a better word, a deep state that uh, is, does move relentlessly and clearly has this agenda, which is to provoke a conflict. I mean, they 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 are desperate to provoke this conflict uh, with Russia and then with uh, China. Um, I, I think. 
Macron's uh, diagnosis is right. There will be a conflict with China. I mean, there's, there's no question. I mean, just as uh, there was a conflict uh, with Russia, we are heading towards a conflict with China because the United States wants it and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Just as, the, you know, with the people like um, Victoria Newland, the, the permanent fixture in Washington, you know, she goes from one administration to another. And what is she doing in all of these administrations? The same thing as always provoking conflict, advancing uh, American interest, what she sees as American interest, by provoking crises, to which then America is always the answer. And, and that's how they will uh, move uh, towards China. So, you know, there may well be voices within Europe that will say, like, yeah, we agree with Macron, but there's really very little they can do about it. There is a transatlantic elite, you know, the, 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 the military uh, in, uh, in Europe, is thoroughly integrated into NATO. The in in the military industries in Europe are almost kind of non-existent. Macron, Macron said, "Yeah, we really need to get our military industries off the ground." And then Poland says, "Yeah, but we're not buying anything from Europe. We're buying exclusively from the United States." And there's going to be others that say, "Yeah, we don't want to buy any of these stinking Euro French uh, planes. We want to buy our planes from uh, from Washington." So it's it's unfortunate that you know you can just simply say, "Yeah, this is this is really stupid." Orban says the same thing. But the uh, the transatlantic gravy train is just uh, inexorable. Yeah, the, the, that's exactly what it is. And, and Alexander, what's what's most dangerous here is that one of the things that we learned from the Cold War, one of the things you should not do during the Cold War, is go toe to toe with a peer power. You don't do that. You could have Vietnam. You can have Afghanistan. You can have uh, fighting in in uh, in, uh, in Africa. But you don't go toe to toe, and this is a, a a break. And I think maybe it has something to do with, you know, we have a empty president, we have an empty suit for a president, because a lot of presidents say, "Yeah, I know what you guys want to do, but it's my presidency and it's my legacy, and I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to be one that brought down the empire here." There's no breaking on these people right now, and so having NATO going against Russia toe to toe, one's going to win and one's going to lose. That was a lesson you shouldn't, it was one thing you didn't do during the Cold War. They have broken that taboo. Alexander. Well, as I've suggested, I think that the people running the show in Washington are not altogether that smart. I think that they've inherited systems, power, institutions from people who were smarter and more competent than they are, and they didn't know what to do with it. So at this point, now that the U.S. is running out of soft power because of what happened in Afghanistan, what's happening in Ukraine, it's just defeat after defeat for this U.S. empire. So I think that now they're being, they're just flailing around. They don't know what to do. Their sanctions have backfired. And uh, so their only option now is to threaten and to bully and to suggest, well, maybe we'll use military force because they don't have any tricks left up their sleeve. So yep. that's effectively all these guys have left. They're not smart enough to come up with any new plans. They're not smart enough to come up with anything that could fix this changing situation. They were handed a strategy down from previous generations, and they don't know how to operate it in the changing world. Yeah, well, I think that's probably the most depressing ending of this program of all time. Okay, that's all the time we have, gentlemen. I want to thank my guests in, uh, in St. Petersburg and in Budapest. I want to thank our viewers for watching us here at RTC. And next time, remember, Crosstalk Rules.